When I take pictures, I count to five. <laughs> that's when people get real. I hear that you have some uh, some follow up. Yeah, yeah. There was an episode a while back where we were talking about our favorite music streaming players, and we had discussed Apple Music, Spotify, some of the classical music tailored ones like Prime Phonic and Adagio, and we even discussed a little while ago how Prime Phonic, I think, has been acquired by Apple. So. I don't know. It happened a while ago, and still nothing's happened. So, yeah, I'm wondering More if people. it's been acquired or if it's been bought, taken out, bought and yeah, <laughs> bought and buried, yeah, assassinated, <laughs> yeah. taken yeah, out back. Yeah. They made it dig its own grave, and then, <laughs> yeah. oh boy. Okay. Anyways, per recommendation of a friend, I actually tried a new for me streaming music app, and. I am totally convinced there is a great streaming music app for classical music. Are you ready for it? I don't know if I am, but I'm going to hear it. <laughs> hear me out. YouTube Music. Just to be clear, YouTube Music is not just YouTube.com using it for searching for music and stuff. You, you mean there's, there's an actual... Okay. And it's not the YouTube app. No, this is an app called YouTube Music. It used to be called Google Play, which, yeah, for some reasons, probably some, you know, McKinsey consultants told them to kill the Google Play <laughs> brand. And, and so they did. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So it's called YouTube Music. And again, it's a streaming music app. It feels very similar to every streaming music app you've used. Amazon Music, Spotify, Apple Music. But there are a few things that it does that I think is just brilliant for classical music. First and foremost, and I'm speaking very personally here, Unsurprisingly, the spell check autocorrect is fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is a and crucial feature for you. You know, I, I'm a little notorious for like misspelling things, but I compare myself to you and you spell everything. You can win a spelling beat like in your sleep. So, <laughs> Well, yeah. apparently but, it runs in my blood. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're, we're not going to go there, are we? <laughs> Though you do get points off for your British spellings over here and there. Uh, that's true, yeah. And no, anyway, so, but with classical music, this is really useful, right? because there's different spellings for like Tchaikovsky, right? Depending on the record label or who's spelling it, right? And uh, there's other situations. I mean, yeah, just again, you can't always spell it right. You don't know if it's movement one or MOV one or MOV period one or just the Roman numeral one. But unsurprisingly, Google, YouTube, they have a really good search algorithm that they've been <laughs> refining for decades now. So it's really good at figuring out exactly what you're intending to search for. And then it surfaces everything that kind of falls underneath that, even if they don't have the exact spelling you put in. Whereas Apple Music, for example, what I was using before, dude, you have to spell it perfectly <laughs> to get for it to return anything. So that's the first thing. Yeah, I will say real quick just that I do make fun of your spelling here and there, but for classical music especially, this feature is really important. And it's not just spelling. I would put it all under the category of general discoverability because even if you're great at spelling in English, say, the problem with classical music is you, al you often have to search for things in Latin or in French or German or Russian or who knows, and it's impossible to know how to spell all those languages. And like you said, the metadata is always off. So it's not just like spelling, but it's, it's a general ease of finding something which is so much more important or so much more necessary in classical music than it is for you know, popular music or even jazz, really. Right. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it, like the searchability, discoverability. This is what Google does, right? <laughs> so yeah. it, it, should, it shouldn't be surprising in hindsight when I was thinking about it. So the next reason I really love YouTube music for classical music is a cool feature they have that by definition only they can have. They have a way of classifying like all the music that's on YouTube. So let's take an example. I really love that Claudio Obato 
and Berlin Philharmonic performance of the Verdi Requiem. Oh, yeah. Fantastic performance and like the offstage brass bands totally nail it and they often don't. So <laughs> in that in that recording, it's just really great. So what YouTube Music does in these searches you do, if I search for like Verdi Requiem Abado, one of the things that will come up is that performance on YouTube. But I have the option to just listen to the audio of it. It, it already identified that as something that's not like a movie trailer or something. It identified it as music and now it's just on YouTube Music as audio. Dude, that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> and there's actually a toggle, too. If you want to watch it in the original video form, you can just switch the toggle and do that if you want. But by default, it'll just play the audio. That is really convenient. Yeah, and I'm sure the way it works on the back end, right, is the way YouTube would work, where they kind of have identified the artist, and you know they pay them the ad royalties you get from YouTube, or they pay part of your subscription fee. Anyway, dude, I find myself using that all the time, because especially in, like, a lot of the stuff I love and, you know, I think it's so fun to just get into is a lot of the jazz videos. And a lot of that is just like live concerts, <laughs> you know, live jam sessions like the Chet Baker Milan concert or something. And that before you couldn't really, I mean, I've done this before where I've pulled up the YouTube app and I press play on the video and, and then I put it in my pocket yeah. and listen to it on headphones, right? I, th- I think we've all done that. So this just makes it super simple and easy and downloadable and savable too. So... Man, that's going to be awesome for my particular use case, which we've talked about them before, but I am totally in love with the Netherlands Bach Society in in Amsterdam. And they've been doing this project called All of Bach now for a handful of years. And they must be getting pretty damn close by now, but maybe not. Can you maybe, you know reiterate their mantra, their mission statement? So they are a historically informed performance group in Amsterdam, and and they basically are trying to record all of Bach's catalog, um, like all of his cantatas and sort of instrumental works, chamber music, etc. And they're basically recording them around their concert hall, like other sort of cool locations in the Netherlands, sometimes in Germany, and they have great audio quality, great videography, and the musicians are just first rate they're just the best and they have all these great videos on their youtube channel but they they haven't put out like a quote-unquote recording since i think like 2011 or something like all of this all of bach project stuff has been all video and it's all on youtube and it's all free yeah. and that's it's all fantastic yeah, it's too. all great like it's yeah very professional great video yeah, yeah I, I would say it's, it's one of the most like interesting and it's one of the most interesting artistic projects but it's also one of the best educational resources that mm. i've seen in classical music in recent years And my only, it's not even an issue, but my only like thing with it is that it's all on YouTube and it's all video. And I often wish I could just listen to the recordings as if they were recordings on an album because they are that good, you know.
as you've been talking, I, I pulled it up on my iPhone on the YouTube Music app, the Netherlands Box Society official YouTube Music page. Yeah, they have all their videos, and so I can just pick one right here. And, yep, I have the option to listen to it. There's like a song video toggle on oh, the top. Dude. And then dude, I can that save gonna, it for offline. That single-handedly will be worth the price of admission for me. Yeah, and the best part, Shreeder, so the price of admission is... Uh, I mean, it costs the same amount as you know, everything does these days. It's like $10 a month. Yeah. Really. <laughs> is, that, is that the $9.99 or $10.99? <laughs> yeah. those, those are the two options. <laughs> yeah. Um, but anyway, I signed up for like the free like two-week trial. And then, of course, at the end of it, it said, oh, summer special. You can actually have three months free. So I'm selling that free tier nice. sort of thing. And so you can try it out, man. You can try it out. And, dude, I am... Unless something really weird happens or something, I'm almost convinced I'm going to get rid of my Apple Music and just pay for this. It's just better for what I want to use a streaming music app for. I mean, you've certainly sold me on it. I, I know what I'm going to be setting up this evening. So... Reader, the whole podcast has been leading to this. It's finally here. It's finally here. <laughs> yeah, we planned on doing like a Leonard Bernstein special or an episode where we talked about Lenny. We planned on doing that as like episode two or three, but something just kept coming up that felt, you know, a little more present. And so <laughs> we've been joking about doing this for over two years now, but <laughs> I think it's finally here. We're actually going to talk about Leonard Bernstein, which we've talked to him about him before in other respects on the show, but. I think it's time we dive into this icon and, I don't know, a hero of, I think, both of ours. So Yeah. I, I will say, in true ITL fashion, at least on my end, one of the reasons that we've sort of delayed this has been that we both wanted to sort of be prepared and, and really have, like, a good thing to say about, about Lenny, right, mm-hmm. before we did yeah. this. So, so we kept saying, like, you know, when we have time to prepare, we'll do it. And, and now we're doing it. And um, I don't know about you, but I haven't really prepared. So... <laughs> Um, You're in luck because I have see three bullet points. Nice, uh, nice. Wait, wait, no, sorry. One was YouTube music, so sorry too. <laughs> nice, nice. <laughs> I think I think Birdson would would appreciate it. I have to say, I mean, from what I know, he he was a master procrastinator. So mm, you know, we we're, we're we're keeping with the uh, Bernsteinian spirit. And so was Da Vinci. So I mean, I think we're in good company, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so, well, the reason I think it is a little more pressing, (laughs) if it can be, so there is a movie being made right now about the life of Leonard Bernstein, directed and starring Bradley Cooper, playing Lenny himself, and I believe it is called Maestro, and it's in production right now. I know they're filming, like in September, I think they're moving the production to Europe to film, actually, I don't know what they're doing in Europe, but to film, I think, things in London and Italy, so probably some of the stuff he did with the LSO, the London Symphony Orchestra, and maybe some of the stuff he did at La Scala Opera House in Milan. Yeah. That's just a guess, because he was the first American to conduct at that opera house, so. Yeah, he was the first American to conduct La Scala, and he was also, was he, um, he had a special role in London, in, in the London Symphony. He did. Like he, he wasn't like their artistic director or anything, but he, he had one of those sort of honorary titles where he was, he was always sort of there, guest conducting. and I get the vibe there was perhaps a restaurant across the street he just really loved. He <laughs> <laughs> just always wanted an excuse to go to London. So Yeah. So there's so many ways we can take this. But it's funny, he's kind of a tough person to introduce. It almost is like introducing Da Vinci. He was kind of a Renaissance man. I mean, he did, he did so much and I guess refused to draw the boundaries where most people did, right? 
but the place I was going to intend to start was that it, he was more or less the first major American conductor. Right? He was the first, I believe, this is correct, he was the first American conductor of a major U.S. orchestra, right, when he got the post in the New York Philharmonic, and I think that was, what, mid-late 50s or so? Something like that. There were great American orchestras. I mean, the Boston Symphony, the New York Phil, Cleveland, Chicago, Philadelphia. But the music directors and conductors were always European, <laughs> right? <laughs> they were Italian, they were French, they were Russian, they were German. But Bernstein, he kind of paved the way for the American conductor, and we're used to it now. But back then, he was sort of the first of that tradition. To sort of riff with that, I remember talking to my teacher once who sort of knew Bernstein a little bit and, and, and played with him. And I just remember asking him, I was like naive and, and young, and I remember asking him um, what made Leonard Bernstein great? Why do we still remember him and why do we still uh, you know, look up to him and care about him? And I, I was expecting some sort of big holistic answer about how he changed this or that or he introduced this. These are all the sort of cliches that surround Bernstein that make him really hard to introduce, right? that he was the, the first American to do this or like the, the first uh, person to do that. And he was such a polymath and all these things. But the easiest thing to forget is that he was just, and this is what my teacher told me, he, he was just good. He was, a, he was a really good musician. He, was, <laughs> he, really, he, he really knew what he was doing. <laughs> he was a great pianist. He, he could have had a career as a concert pianist if he wanted to. Hmm. Obviously, the famous recording of him playing Gershwin, the Rhapsody in Blue, but there's also some recordings of him playing really fiendishly difficult pieces like the Copeland Variations. As a conductor... recording of him playing um, the Ravel Piano Concerto? That's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. And that's not the easy one you pick, you know? (laughs) Right, right. And he did all those series of recordings of the Beethoven concertos with the Vienna Philharmonic. which he plays on a Beckstein piano, which... Nice. If I could have any piano in the world, that's the one. So. <laughs> yeah. I think there, there's, like, the odd Mozart concerto recording out there, you know? Okay. So he, he's a fairly well-recorded pianist. Obviously not as well-recorded as he would have been if he were just a pianist, but he had chops. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and as a conductor, I mean, he was searching for something, searching for a sort of unique sound and a u- unique way to express music. And, and his compositions are similarly unique. Yeah, I think it's it's easy to sort of look at him as just almost like a novelty. I, th- I kind of see this with other people like uh, Glenn Gould as well, the pianist. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, people mention his name, and then as soon as they mention it, they're talking about his eccentricities. They're talking about uh, how weird some of his recordings are or his stance on live performance and uh, his sort of media philosophies and recordings and stuff like that. Um, but the thing that's lost in all of that is that the guy could shred, right? He, <laughs> there's a wonderful interview with uh, the violinist, uh, I think his name is Jaime Laredo or something like that. I could be mispronouncing it, but he recorded the Bach violin sonatas for, for violin and, and harpsichord with him, with Gould. 
and when he went to record them, he, he remarked upon the, the fact that the thing that he found most surprising was that Glenn Gould was actually just a really, really good pianist. He was like he was like he was going into this recording sort of like afraid of all these things about like Glenn Gould. Is he going to be controlling about the way that he plays? You know, they, he he's recording at night and it's like how's all this going to work? But then he just hears him and he's like, oh yeah, this guy could just he's just a really good musician. Like he was really easy to play chamber music with. He never missed a note. It's like yeah, that's like that's like the the last thing that people talk about. But I think it's true for Bernstein as well. You know, the first American to do this, the polymath musician of the 20th century, blah blah blah. And it's like yeah, but he was also just. Every musician will just, you know, look at him and say, like, man, this guy really knew what, what the hell he was doing. <laughs> so he, he earned it, right? So help me out, too, because one of the puzzles with Bernstein, I always thought, is, like, how was he so good at so many things? Or put it differently, like, I asked, like, how was he so good at so many things, right? And being the musical polymath, right? But I think an even more interesting question was, how was he so prolific at so many things? Mm-hmm. Because... If we say he's a great like educator, composer, and conductor, there's actually a lot of people that are great at all those things too. Especially in music, it's rare to find the performer. I'm sure they exist. The performer that's good at just playing orchestral music, right? Sure, maybe that's what is their full-time career and pays the bills. But an, an example I think of is um, the flute player who I I met. Um, what was his name? Um, Dieter Fleury. Yeah, the principal yeah. flute of the Vienna Philharmonic. Yeah. I was like kind of blown away because he was so he was so cool and also I mean again a great flute player all this stuff you know right but he was also a mathematics professor at, at one of the universities in Vienna and wrote math textbooks and stuff and of course he was also an educator right he taught flute because it's almost hard to find a successful musician who's not also an educator right and yeah. our music theory professor, Dr. Julian Hook, who was not only a great music theorist, but a fantastic pianist, who was the resident pianist, I think, of the Chicago Symphony for a while, I mean, back in the days. Wow. And then, but also, he was a professor of architecture and wrote mathematics textbooks and lectured on math. And so it's like, there's a lot of people, and I guess, like, even you and me are, I mean, I don't want to, like, flatter ourselves, but, like, a lot of people are good at, like, several things. It's actually kind of rare for the for someone in music or not in music to just be great at just that one thing, even though that's maybe the one thing that really pays the bills or the one thing that they're kind of remembered for. So at once, like Bernstein isn't unique in this multifaceted ability, especially in music, but he is kind of unique in like how successful he was in each of those and how he's remembered for all those as well. That's an interesting point. To the question about the polymathic nature of his ability, I will say a lot of those things, I will almost say it's one thing, you know. It's a modern contrivance to split up, say, performance and composition. We've talked before about how at a certain time in the evolution of music, that was the sort of break that happened. I don't know why, maybe because of the introduction of the, of the sort of middle class. Uh, but I think Bernstein is, it is, it's all kind of the same thing as, as a musician, too. It's, it's a natural thing to, to do all those things. And he just sort of harkens back to that a, a little bit. But that still doesn't solve the problem of, of how prolific he was. And that could just be, I mean, he was a workaholic, it seemed. He just mm-hmm. worked all the time. He was working on something. You know, there's a quote of him. I, I, I can't quote it exactly, but it's something like, I want to do everything. I, I want to play music. I want to write music. I want to write for Broadway. I want to write opera. I want to write poetry, right? I, he wanted to do everything. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, I think he was, it's not like he didn't have fun or anything, but, but mm-hmm. he's just one of those guys that, that you look at and, he found a way of being where every, all of his work seemed, from the outside at least, to be kind of like play. 
So he was just always having fun and always playing around, right? And so he was just able to do it all the time. There's no hack to being prolific, right? You just have to show up. Every, <laughs> you just have to show up every day and, and work really hard. And I think he did. Yeah, yeah. It's, and by the way, he paid the price for it. Like his his health yeah. suffered for much of his life. You know. Yeah, he died at 72, right? Which he had had health problems, like pretty bad health problems, for about two decades, if not longer, before that. Yeah. So. And smoking I mean, and drinking didn't help, I'm convinced. Well, yeah, but I think he yeah. used those things to keep... That was part of it. Yeah, right? he used yeah, those things yeah. to keep his uh, sort of junky energy up, right, to, to burn the candle at both ends. Kind of similar to yeah. someone like Christopher Hitchens, you know. People always yeah. say, like, how is he able to write, uh, you know, a, co- a column every single day, right? And he, how does he do it? Well, that's, that's exactly how he does it. He's always working. <laughs> yeah. The more I'm alive and just, like, working in the world and trying to, like, accomplish things, one of the most valuable skills that I think anyone can have and few people like have it naturally I think but it's something that anyone can build up and that is the skill of being a good communicator and like being a good listener which is part of that as well Bernstein seemed to just be a natural at that you look at his Norton lectures which um, it's him lecturing to a bunch of Harvard masters and PhD students right and then you also have his young people's lectures where he's lecturing to a concert hall full of seven-year-olds but asking the same questions some of these are like, what is melody, right? It's like, this is, yeah, that's a dissertation-worthy question, sure. You know, He knows how to communicate that to an uh, auditorium or a concert hall full of school children, um, how to communicate it to an orchestra, how to communicate it to academia and stuff. And I do think part of his success was due to the fact he was just a natural and very effective communicator. And the more I'm alive, the more I'm realizing that's a lot of a lot of people's success in yeah. work, in life, in relationships, all that. The art of conducting is is really communicating, and it's something where you have to communicate. Uh, obviously, in in some esoteric way, you have to communicate with the composer, but mm-hmm. more directly, you have to communicate something to the orchestra and to the audience. And those are two different modes, and uh, you have to be able to effectively sort of inhabit both of them simultaneously. Bernstein clearly had a had a knack. For that. That, that, I think that was his great talent, right? Obviously, he was a very talented musician, but if you really scale everything back, the sort of core of his talent is, is exactly like what you said. It's, it's to be able to communicate the same thing at all these different levels of understanding. And with um, Bernstein, I think it's kind of obvious too, or it just it's obvious in hindsight because he, I mean, he even says this in interviews. Yeah, he's been teaching piano as long as he's been playing it because when he was starting out in piano to pay for his piano lessons, he taught kids in the neighborhood piano he was a piano teacher from like the age of nine <laughs> so so for him it was just always he was always playing that game you know and always honing that skill yeah I think you know you were saying before that it's rare to find a musician who's not also a performer who's not also an educator that's kind of true for a lot of reasons one of which is that in classical music there's, there's basically two ways to get a steady income one of them is having a full-time job in an orchestra and the other mm-hmm. one is, is having a private studio so yeah right that's one of the reasons why you'll it's rare to find a performer who's not also an educator but I will say that it's it's rare to find someone who's truly good at educating hmm. um, when, whenever I find a, someone who's a really really good teacher it's it's something special in the classical music world because I think a lot of what we do is so sort of tactile and intuitive. And yeah. most teachers, me included, like I, I don't think I'm a great teacher. And it's not false modesty because <laughs> I've seen great teachers and I'm, I, I recognize the difference. Really special teachers, they, they have this sort of, it's a different charisma and Bernstein had it. When I watch him give his um, young people's concert lectures, mm-hmm. those are something special to behold, right? Those really should be are. like required viewing for all teachers, regardless of the subject, right? They're fantastic, and they're also really fascinating. You know, yeah, yeah. Like, it's, like I, I watch them, and I'm like, wow, I've never thought of it that way. That's really interesting. Hmm. 
like that one about what is American music or what does American music sound like or something, right? Is pretty fascinating where he plays. He has the orchestra play kind of like the second half of Gershwin's An American in Paris and says, you know, all right, we all know that music we just heard was American, right? And we don't know it because the composer was American. We don't know, we don't know it because the title is An American in Paris. But the notes themselves, they sound American. And he spends a lecture with, again, a bunch of grade school kids in the, in the concert hall. He spends a lecture trying to answer that question. And it's, it's pretty fascinating and pretty impressive. Because <laughs> yeah. anyone who's taught young kids know how much of a challenge you know, it is to <laughs> hold their attention for 20 seconds. I, I mean, yeah, that's totally true. Yeah, and you know, let alone for really esoteric subjects like this. You yeah. know? Like some of the ones that he, he does are like, like you said, uh, what is American music? There's also, what does music mean? You know, we went through music school and we never really talked about that. That's, <laughs> it's just true. You know, yeah, it's, yeah. it's this thing that we just do. What does music yeah. mean? Well, it's for people in school or in the industry. What music means is it, it's the you know, next handful of pieces I got to learn for the next concert or something. Right, right. So I, I love the way that he sort of carved out the space to get really philosophical with music in a way that we don't really in our daily lives. And you could really only do it with kids. When she heard me play this piece, she said... Ooh, the Lone Ranger song. I owe silver. Well, I hate to disappoint her, and you too, but it really isn't about the Lone Ranger at all. It's about notes, E flats and F sharps. You see, no matter how many times people tell you stories about what music means, forget them. Stories aren't what music means about, at all. Music is never about anything. Music just is. Music is notes, beautiful notes and songs put together in such a way that we get pleasure out of listening to them. That's all there is to it. And when we ask, what does it mean? What does this piece of music mean? Then we're asking a very hard question. And that's the question we're going to try to answer today. So what do we think of this of this movie, this movie Maestro, <laughs> this in production? So what I do know, yeah, so Bradley Cooper is directing and he's starring as Bernstein. Have you seen the pictures, like the production pictures? That look pretty close to, to Lenny. <laughs> like, yeah, they look pretty good. I forget who else is starring in it. I know Jeremy Strong from Succession and The Big Short. He's been in a handful of stuff. He's a fantastic actor. He's in it. They've released some other details of some other names I didn't quite recognize. But I do know Spielberg and Scorsese are involved as producers, I want to say. You know, that can mean a whole bunch of things, but hopefully that means it's not going to be the West Side Story remake of the Spielberg, because <laughs> Marty is right there next to him going like, <laughs> yeah, nope, yeah. nope, sorry. <laughs> He's there to temper it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Supposedly Bradley Cooper's a fan or something, right? Or he's like a fan of classical music. From what I read, this was kind of like his passion project. He huh. And he had been studying conducting and stuff to like play this role and stuff. I mean, we'll be the judge, right? <laughs> we'll, yeah. We'll, but yeah, so I'm kind of optimistic in that. Because, dude, one of the things that I just couldn't stand it. I, I'm sorry. I hate, I'm usually not this guy, but I couldn't stand it. But there was that show on Amazon Prime that was good for the most part. Um, Mozart in the Jungle. Oh, you hear yeah. that? Yeah, I've heard yeah. of that. Yeah. So it was like fun. It was good. But the thing I just could not stand... Oh, what's his name? The Mexican actor who's fantastic. He's like he, the Dudamel stand-in. Yeah, yeah. What's... Oh. Gael Garcia Bernal. All right. Thank you, Google. <laughs> so he's fantastic. It's not a knock on him. But his conducting, though, is just atrocious. Like, I, it's just, it's so far from, like, real, I can't even, like, believe it, right? If it was close enough, it's close enough, right? And a lot of real conductors are just that close enough. <laughs> so <laughs> Yeah, so all you got to do is get close enough. Again, I'm usually not this guy. You know, I, 
I, I enjoy a good historical fiction movie or historical film that's not 100% accurate. It's like, fine, you just have to roll with it, right? But so so much of the story revolved around the fact that he was like a world-class conductor. And, yeah. And it just didn't, it didn't happen. Nope. I mean, I have to say, this is totally off topic, but like, yeah, I'm not usually that guy either, but I'm not saying that he, that, you know, conductors in movies have to get mm-hmm. world-class conducting. But mm-hmm. they should be able to like beat time in a way that looks relatively accurate. I don't think that's yeah, too much yeah. to ask of an actor whose job it is to act. I mean, look, <laughs> if I see like a a duel scene in like I don't know some period drama, whatever, mm-hmm. I'm not asking that the duel is is carried out in exactly the you know the historically accurate way that it would have been carried out in. But if at the end of it, you know they point their guns in ways that is just not how you hold a gun and you shoot it in the wrong direction and you just it's clear that you just don't know what you're doing with a gun then it defeats the purpose of the whole scene right so you got to know how to like you know beat time at least yeah it, it was it was tough the first violin played sharp 17 times in the first movement alone and we weren't able to perceive tchaikovsky's desired dynamic shift from bars 27 to 34 changes will be made to the point of bernstein being so prolific and polymathic. I could be wrong, and if I am, listeners, please let me know. But is he the closest a classical musician has gotten to getting an EGOT? Because <laughs> he has, so, he's gotten Emmys for his Young People's Concert. He's gotten Grammys. Huh. He's gotten Grammys up the wazoo, obviously. Okay, yeah, yeah. That's yeah a, not a, even as a basement yeah. of Grammys. <laughs> and I think he has he has Tonys for um, would it be for West Side Story or is it? It may have been for. Um, on the town or on, either on the town or maybe i think it may have been wonderful town do you know that one it's a musical about like I don't know wonderful town yeah it's, it's a musical that he i think he wrote it in like a real hurry or something but i think it's about like two two sisters from the from the somewhere in the midwest and they go try to make it in new oh. york city and they have like a basement flat in greenwich <laughs> village and you know you know what happens <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but he may i think he maybe got some tonys for that and on top of i'm oh, sure he okay. got something for west Side story and stuff but he just doesn't yeah. have an oscar but <laughs> The idea of a classical musician getting an EGOT is just bonkers. <laughs> I have a hard time because, okay, the Oscar categories for composing, there's obviously best original store, score, best original score. There used to be, is there still the best best adaptive score? Because that was John Williams' first Oscar for Fiddler on the Roof. He adapted the score from Broadway to the film. Interesting. And that's how John Williams got his first Oscar was that. Was that. <laughs> And he, he wrote, you know, the violin solo that is um, Isaac Stern playing. Oh, yeah, yeah. Think, yeah. yeah, yeah. That's a wonderful song, yeah. Dude, so like Oscars are hard to get. Yeah. Oscars are hard to get. Let's put it this way. Like Beyonce has like how many Grammys? Like 30 or 40 or something. But then I think Scorsese only has like one Oscar. He has best director from um, The Departed. And that was kind of the 
I don't want to call it like the Mercy Oscar, but I think the Academy was like, dude, how's how's this guy not have an Oscar by now? Yeah. <laughs> so we finally got his Best Director Oscar, I think, with The Departed. The person alive with the most Oscars is Alan Menken with six. Ah, so, yeah. Yeah. Also, fun fact about Alan Menken, he might be the first Regot. Wait, what's actually, a Regot? As of recent. If you win a Razzie as well. <laughs> is that like the crap internet award? It sort of is. It's like the anti-Oscars, like for worst film, worst score. And he won worst song, I think, for Newsies. <laughs> so. High times, hard times, sometimes the living is sweet. And sometimes there's nothing to eat. I always land on my feet So then there's dry times I wait for high times and then I put on my vest and I stick out my chest And I'm off to the races again So I have a question for you with Lenny So your brilliant flute professor in Paris, Jean Ferrandis He worked with Lenny Mm -hmm. more than once, right? Like a few times Mm -hmm. Do you know like when and like where? Like what capacity in the setting? Actually, there's a, a little story here on um, a channel that we'll link to in the show notes. It's it's called Jean Ferrandi's Flutist Official Archive. It's actually run by our friend Tomas. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> He's been taking Jean's out-of-print recordings and oh, putting them on YouTube, which I think is is a valuable thing to do because, you know, they're not to be found elsewhere except, like, yeah. his students have them, but... And the YouTube Music app. And now the YouTube Music <laughs> app, yeah. So on that, the first video on that channel, actually, um, again, we'll put this in the show notes. It's a recording, actually, from a rehearsal where Jean, as a student, is playing with Bernstein, uh, conducting the orchestra. Mm. And, and there's a little quote from Jean in the description. Yeah, so he says, uh, quote, I met Leonard Bernstein in 1987 at the Franco-American School of Fontainebleau. Lenny had decided to come in homage to his master, Nadia Boulanger. So he arrived a day earlier for a conducting master class where I was playing the concerto in D major by Mozart. I didn't know he would be there and I had my eyes closed as I often do when I play the slow movement when I opened my eyes and I saw him. He had settled in front of me with red flashy suspenders and big sunglasses. After this, he, he imposed a concerto on his concert program. He composed a cadenza for me in the third movement, inspired me enormously and taught me a lot. I remained in contact with him until his death in 1990. The word genius is too often used, but he was a real one, a man, an artist, out of the norms. Mm. I like that. So, so that's the story of how they how they met. And yeah, in this video, you can hear you can hear the rehearsal and Bernstein. You know, as Jean is playing, there's a, a wonderful moment where Bernstein says, "It's Pan himself, right? The god who who plays the flute." Why are you talking? How can you talk during that? Shut me out on you, Gosar. C'est pas lui-même. I can 
think of two stories of they're not really stories, but two things about about Bernstein that John would tell us. One of one of them was his personal assistant had a hell of a time trying to keep him in line because Bernstein was just always having too much fun, you know, <laughs> uh, always partying, always waking up late, always hungover, and to make Leonard Bernstein show up on time to any kind of meeting or meet any kind of deadline would be a job that is worth more money than they could ever have paid him. <laughs> yeah, I mean, personal assistant isn't even isn't even the right word. Like, it's it's not just like managing a calendar. It's like part babysitter, part like, yeah, yeah, part manager, like part care, a, caretaker yeah. almost. Caretaker, yeah, yeah. And the other thing is, um, John tells the story of how he one time asked Bernstein, you know, how, how Lenny, how is it that you're so day in day out? You're you're always so great whenever you're giving a concert, you know, and. Mm-hmm. Leonard Bernstein said something to the effect of, you know, I don't always feel great. Just just like anyone else, sometimes I, I go up on stage and I play shit. You know, I conduct shit or I sound like shit or whatever. And the difference with me is that is that I just say I just accept and I say, This is how I am today and, and this is this is me. And if you like it, you like it. And if you don't, fuck off. Right? Mm-hmm. That's the only way to be an artist. And I think there's there's a lot of truth to that. And and when I heard that, that sort of changed my perspective on on being an artist and, and being a musician, mm. right? This isn't like a get out of jail free car to sound like crap and play really sloppily, right? You, you got to right, always right. practice and try your best and, and um, try to be as precise and accurate as you can. But some days you just feel worse than others. And I think part of being an artist is being in touch with that and, and communicating that. It's really right. important for an artist to be present and be be really communicative of, of the of the mood and the feeling of, of the moment, of his, of his or her moment, right? And sure. maybe that's the thing that that's the real value that artists provide in, in society to really draw it out all the way. You know, the role of an artist is maybe to remind the people who go to to witness the art what mm-hmm. being present means. And I think Bernstein was really he really had a special genius for that. Whenever I watch anything that he's doing, whether he's just giving an interview or whether he's conducting a Mahler symphony or just playing a little ditty on the piano, ex- explaining something or, or teaching or giving a lecture at the young people's concert. He just seems so present yeah that is the only way to be an artist and that's that's why he was such an artist no matter what he was doing so people's careers you know regardless of industry there's some obvious places where communication is like a valuable skill set, maybe like politics is like an obvious one. But even in like, say, really technical fields, like, you know, API engineering or something, (laughs) or something like just being an orchestral musician, you know, you could think that's a fairly technical field in a respect, right? Yeah. But I think people are surprised, myself included, like when I was, you know, entering the workforce and like no longer in the shell of academia, how important communication actually is as a skill. And the people that you see that are like really smart, like really good at their like roll up the sleeves, tactical, technical work, whatever that is, those who are great at that, but who are also like a really good communicator, they're pretty successful, you know, in a company, in a career, in an organization, in an industry. There's a lot, I mean, even conductors, there's a lot of conductors that are brilliant, fantastic conductors, but you know, they're, they don't like talking. <laughs> yeah. Let's throw out some know. names. Ricardo Muti. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we do it for the listeners, man. <laughs> there, there's that like 
kind of stupid ad he did for the Chicago Symphony when he was named their music director. This is back in like 2009 or something. Uh-huh. And it just goes, uh, he just goes, I love this city very much. <laughs> and they're playing the very Requiem in it. <laughs> it's like the skyline of Chicago. <laughs> yeah, that's hilarious. Yeah, but like with Bernstein, yeah, like it it really something because it's not just the PR aspect. It's the running and rehearsal aspect, right? It's the working, um, you know, working with other musicians, working with the suits, right? That's a skill, you know, yeah. that you need to be a successful conductor, right? You know, how to give good interviews to to the press, right? All, all this stuff. One of the most important things that Bernstein did was not self-directed. It wasn't It wasn't like this, you know, obviously he, he did lots of important contributions to, like with his compositions and, and stuff like that. But a significant part of his legacy is in the musicians that he helped bring up. One of his great qualities was as a, a champion of like underheard music, maybe. Obviously, the the example that everyone brings up is Mahler. He mm-hmm. really brought Mahler to America, or maybe even to Europe. I actually don't know what the. I would say before Bernstein's recordings and performances of Mahler, Mahler was more celebrated as a conductor than a composer. Yeah, yeah. It, it's kind of funny. He took Mahler's old job, the music director of the Philharmonic. So it's... yeah. So that's a very clear example. But also, I mean, he championed Glenn Gould. He gave Glenn Gould the opportunity for the first for his first um, television appearance in the U.S. Yeah, with the Which, D minor, yeah, uh, the Bach, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the D minor Bach keyboard concerto, BWV ten fifty two. For those also, who are keeping track, by the way, <laughs> that uh, video performance is fantastic, I and mean, it's what with the maybe is it the Philharmonic or maybe like the I NBC think it may be the, the Columbia Symphony Columbia or something. Is, yeah, gotcha. Okay, yeah, the CBC um, Symphony, whatever the, the or CBS Symphony. I don't know what it is. Yeah, <laughs> it's like the Columbia Broadcasting. Who knows what it's <laughs> the ESPN Symphony. Um, <laughs> So that is fantastic performance, but the camera work is fantastic for that performance. It's really good. There's one spot in particular, I can like timestamp it and put it in the show notes, but yeah, where the camera cuts to the pedals of the piano with Glenn Gould playing in, yeah, that's such a huge part of piano playing that never gets the camera work or the spotlight, but yeah, there's a lot like Glenn Gould's doing under the hood, Yeah, (laughs) under the soundboard. Especially with the way that Gould used the pedal for Bach, at least at a certain time in his career, um, he was using the pedal to emphasize certain beats of Bach. Mm-hmm. So he wasn't using it in a traditional way where he would um, let the pedal sort of sustain for a while. He was using the sustain to, he was almost using it as an accent, yeah, an, an additional right. accent that he could, he could give to the sound without necessarily changing the articulation with his fingers. Mm-hmm. So it was a very interesting use of the pedal that's captured on camera. There was a whole dust up with the Brahms D minor piano concerto. Yeah, yeah. Which is not really a dust up. I mean, I don't know if we want to get into it, but I think we should. I, I was hoping to come around to the relationship between Glenn Gould, the Canadian pianist, and Leonard Bernstein. Yeah, I just think it's such a good model of like how to have a professional and I mean a professional relationship and friendship. Two lesser art artists would have disagreed with each other enough where they wouldn't have collaborated or put out any recordings, but instead they did disagree and put out some fantastic recordings. Iconic, actually, recordings. Yeah. So, I mean, 
the story goes that Gould wanted to play the piano concerto by Brahms. He wanted to play the first movement absurdly slowly, as Glenn Gould was often wanting to do. He would he would sort of play with the tempos and just styles in, in a way that was, you know, some people would classify as eccentric. And um, the story goes that, that they had this creative disagreement and then Bernstein gave this uh, little speech before one of their concerts in which he mm. says, basically, who's the boss, the soloist or the conductor? You know, that's the problem that we're running into here. And he, he basically says that he, he's letting Gould try his way out, but not because he agrees with it necessarily, but because an artist of Gould's caliber is someone that he, he, he must respect his interpretation because he's going to find something interesting in it. Even if he doesn't necessarily like the whole thing or agree with it, there's going to be something there. And it's in the interest of the sportive element of music to, to sort of see what happens when you do it this way. Mm-hmm. So, so then they end up doing it. And that became this whole scandal. And the reviewers didn't like it at all. But actually, what the real story was um, that it seemed by all accounts that Gould and Bernstein were pretty good friends. And yeah. Bernstein loved Gould. I mean, when his um, 1955... Goldberg Variation Recordings came Gould. out. Yeah, yeah, yeah Gould's yeah, recording yeah, yeah. came yeah. out. Um, Bernstein tells a story about how he was driving somewhere or something, and the recording came on the radio, and he had to pull over and just, hey, I had to listen to it. And yeah. I know that um, Bernstein and his wife Felicia really loved Gould, and they just sort of took him in. And in preparation for this concert of the Brahms Concerto, Gould called up Bernstein, and, and he said, you know, I had this, I found all these crazy things in, in Brahms, and I, I, I need to show you. So Bernstein invited him up to his apartment, or invited him down, I guess, from, from Canada. <laughs> Gould came over, and, and he was looking, you know, rel- relatively unkempt, you know, as, <laughs> as Gould was wont to do, and, and Felicia sort of ran him a bath and helped him clean up, wash his hair, get him clothes that, did, that weren't, because, you know, Gould was... He was not one to necessarily keep up appearances. He was, uh, he, he could he could let himself go a little bit. Sure, sure. And and then they talked about this this thing and and you know this this slow tempo that they took for the first movement was born out of this this idea that um, uh, certain thematic figurations were going to become clear between the movements if you take it at that tempo. So Bernstein mm-hmm. was kind of on board, and they did decide. And, and then so so this first concert where Bernstein gave the speech, it was it was like a Thursday evening concert, and it was traditional for Bernstein to give a few words of introduction mm. anyway. So he was always going to do that. And mm. according to Bernstein, um, he and Gould wrote that speech together, and they were giggling the whole way through, thinking, "Oh, what a controversy this is going to cause!" Because everyone thinks <laughs> everyone's going to think that we are you know like in disagreement with this, but. As far as I know, I mean, maybe if Bernstein were playing it, he would play it faster than Gould did. Uh, I'm not mm. saying that they were like exactly in line. I'm sure that they did disagree. But um, yeah. as you do with your fellow musicians, you, if you're, as you, should. If, as you should, if you're an interesting yeah. musician, you say, yeah, let's try it. And that's what yeah. I really loved about Bernstein in general, like throughout his career. He would always have this, again, the sportive element, right? Of music, yeah. he would just say, yeah, let's try it. It's just a concert. If it doesn't, if it doesn't work, we'll, we'll fix it the next time. Right? Right, right, they were going to do that Brahms concerto four times that weekend, and in fact, they did speed it up a little bit because it just went a little bit too slow. So, if That's you listen to the recordings from the Friday, Saturday, Sunday concerts, they took it a little bit faster. That's what you do as a musician. This whole controversy where like Bernstein supposedly stepped on Gould's toes by dissing his interpretation before before Gould got to go on stage and sort of give it you know his own best word. I, I've seen it used more than once as a way to sort of trash Bernstein and. And say that he wasn't he wasn't being very fair to Gould there. It's a whole lot of nothing that's dropped up by the press. And somehow the rumor, the story has just, in its more salacious form, has just kept on going. But 
um, you know, here we are at ITL setting the record straight. You know, <laughs> that's right. That's right. They were they were in on it together. It was perfectly. Yeah. Everything was above board. It was perfectly kosher. You know, they were they were friends. You know, they, they were just trying a new interpretation out for fun. <laughs> it, was, it was even kosher enough for Bernstein. It was so. kosher <laughs> enough for Bernstein, and they knew it. They, they were the getting, line, and, yeah. they, and they knew that it was going to be this whole sort of press yeah. dust up. You know, <laughs> and and they were good at PR. You know, they they both were. You were about to hear a rather, shall we say, unorthodox performance of the Brahms D minor concerto, a performance distinctly different from any I've ever heard, or even dreamt of for that matter, in its remarkably broad tempi and its frequent departures from Brahms' dynamic indications. I cannot say I am in total agreement with Mr. Gould's conception. And this raises the interesting question, what am I doing conducting it? I'm conducting it because Mr. Gould is so valid and serious an artist that I must take seriously anything he conceives in good faith. And his conception is interesting enough so that I feel you should hear it too. There's that uh, thing with him um, teaching Christian Zimmerman, great Polish pianist. And Christian is, yeah, he's a very like young, handsome, like 18-year-old Polish kid. And he's... He's trying to con- convince um, Bernstein that one of the Beethoven sonatas sh- sh- should go this way. And he's like, oh, no, I'll, I'll play it for you. And-, and Bernstein kind of says in passing, I mean, I'm sure I'm going to like it because I'm hearing how I'm hearing how convinced you are in describing it. Right. And so Bernstein had a, you know, such a I don't want to say like an openness because that's kind of, you know, everyone's open <laughs> these days. Right. It's like that's, you can't not be. So I don't want to say openness, but just like a a willing to like take a second seat which is like not the typical behavior you would expect from a conductor. Uh, yeah, no, I think I think that's a good point. I, and I think I don't know how musicians felt playing under him. I, I haven't really mm-hmm. seen many um, interviews to that effect, but I, I get the sense that generally people liked playing with him. Otherwise, he wouldn't have been called back to conduct so many orchestras. Yeah, <laughs> and, I know. And so many different orchestras from so many different cultures. You know. I mean, that's the thing I, f- I find so interesting, right? Like, I can get like Bernstein being so su- successful in America, but like. The European orchestras were racing to have him conduct their stuff. Like the notably pretty conservative Vienna Philharmonic, you know, he was playing for them modern stuff, like the, the modern concerts he gave and stuff. And, you know, they wanted Bernstein, you know, the French orchestras all wanted Bernstein, the German ones wanted, I mean, they had Bernstein conduct, you know, the, the memorial concert for the fall of the Berlin Wall, right? Yeah. You know, an American, right? And yeah. And they, and they let him change the words to Schiller's poem. Yeah. Um, so Ode to Joy was not Ode to Joy no more. It was, it was Ode to Freedom. Yeah. Oh, is that what it was? Okay, yeah, was yeah. Freude was changed to Freiheit. The willingness to experiment, to take a second seat, the, the embracing of the sporting element, I think that's mm. something that, that I just love in Bernstein. I loved in Gould, and mm. I, I wish we saw more more of it, you know? Yeah, we were talking last time about sort of different ways of playing, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think this is part of that. I, I think it's just the willingness to just say like, oh yeah, let's see how it goes. So many of his recordings are it, it's it's not as much talked about, I think, but a lot of his recordings are really deeply weird, right? Hmm. Yeah, no, he takes like like the Shostakovich symphonies, like his recording for Shostakovich Five, which is standard repertoire these days. Man, he takes some wild tempos in that thing. Yeah. And sometimes they really don't work, and sometimes they really do. I mean, one example is the the Nimrod variation from Elgar's oh. Enigma variations. He takes that 
a good 15, 20 clicks slower than most people do. And it, it, for me, it, it really works. It's really beautiful. Here we are to cap off our Leonard Bernstein discussion. We're going to give you, the listeners, some of our favorite videos on YouTube and YouTube music. <laughs> this episode <laughs> is brought to you by YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so no, some of our favorite Leonard Bernstein videos on the tube. Yeah, because there's so many great ones. And I mean, I have my list of a few. Streeter has his list of a few. And we'll sort of compare notes and see where we land. Really, every episode of ITL is kind of a Leonard Bernstein special. That's true, yeah. Uh, I don't know that we've really gone an episode without mentioning him. Maybe we have, but it's pretty rare. It's true. We've mentioned a lot of his videos, so I've tried to pick three that I don't think we've mentioned. But oh, we're like 35 it. episodes in, so, you know, your guess is as good as mine. What the hell we've actually <laughs> talked about. You tell us, right? Yeah. Okay, Um. why don't you kick us off? All right. One one video I really love is it's kind of a mini documentary. It's, it's about an hour long. It's Leonard Bernstein rehearsing and then performing The Ride of Spring with mm. the um, student-slash-semi-professional orchestra of the uh, Schleswig-Holstein Music Festival in Germany. I think that's where he is. Love it. <laughs> it's not in the description, but I'm, a, I'm pretty he's sure He's at that's one of those. Yeah. yeah. To give context, it's a, it's a music festival in Germany, and musicians who are sort of studying in conservatory or just finished at the conservatory go there for uh, a couple weeks in the summer, and they study, and they play together, and they learn, and they party. And it's a, it's a really great... I think festivals like that are really great experiences for students. And we've kind of talked about yeah. that before. But um, So this is a documentary of him conducting The Wet of Spring. And these, these musicians are phenomenal. They're, they're all people who are going to go on to have wonderful jobs in orchestras. And th- there's, no, there's no lacking in the quality of the orchestra because of their studentness. Mm-hmm. But maybe there's a little bit of lack of uh, maturity in how to play certain things. So it's really interesting to see. Again, it's kind of this uh, communicating to different levels of expertise thing. It's really interesting to see Bernstein talking to Musicians who are clearly capable of doing anything that you ask them to, but maybe don't yet have all the ideas of what they want to do yet. So here's Bernstein yeah. talking to these young pre-professionals, and he's he's able to really get something special out of them, I think. And it's, it's a wonder, awesome. it ends up being a wonderful recording. And it's also really just fun to watch him interact with young kids, because I think that's... He was kind of that age at heart, I think. He wasn't exactly like a, you know, a kid kid, but I think he really clicked with the sort of mid twenties or like late twenties, early thirties kind of guy, um, because you know you can you can be more freer on them. You can make dirty jokes. You can swear. You can make analogies that maybe younger kids wouldn't get. But they're not boring yet. But they're not boring yet. Yeah, and yeah, they're still yeah. got a fire and a passion. So yeah, I think he really clicks with this group, and it just leads to a really fun rehearsal and a really fun documentary, oh, that's and awesome. and a really great yeah. recording. So yeah. Yeah, is it in German or English? I think it's in English. Okay, okay. Um, at the very it. least, it has English subtitles. Okay, Bernstein did speak German, so I think he, maybe there are moments where he's rehearsing in German. There are definitely subtitles because it's, it's an English documentary. So. Got it, got it. Yeah. I think some of, I mean, again, we call them youth orchestras, but like you know, semi-professional 
basically professional orchestras that are just kids. There's some great recordings, like some of the best, I think, of these sorts of orchestras, like the Tinglewood Festival Orchestra, I mean, even Aspen, right? Mm -hmm. um, the Gustav Mahler Youth Orchestra. Exactly, exactly. I mean, we all know Simon Bolivar, the Youth Orchestra in Venezuela. There's a bunch of these. And yeah, I mean, I, I would think like the kids, again, kids is like our age, but yeah, yeah they're approach, approaching the music with a certain curiosity that seasoned orchestral musicians that have been doing it for decades just don't have anymore. Yeah. Or maybe just don't care to have anymore. And a flexibility, so. yeah. That last entrance was too late by one beat. And I don't feel this prehistoric jazz. It's a kind of elephantine jazz. Very Russian, very... Uh, I don't feel the jazz, man. Bop, 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 tutu. It runs. See the way these strings play eighth notes? Everyone is the same. You have to be able to do that. Awesome pick. Awesome pick. Yeah. What about you? I'm going to go with um, this. So I have a few categories. So most painful video. And there this are a is, few. <laughs> and there, there's more than a few. Yeah. This is um, Leonard Bernstein rehearsing the BBC Symphony Orchestra. I want to say this is in the 70s or 80s. He, he looks, you know, older. They're rehearsing the Enigma variations, which we brought up a few minutes ago. And anyway, he gets into an argument with one of the trumpet players. <laughs> and it's a pretty, like, superficial thing. I mean, like, Bernstein's right. The trumpet player is wrong. It's just kind of funny just to hear. <laughs> Bernstein is obviously mic'd because it's, you know, being a recorded rehearsal. But the trumpet player isn't mic'd. But you can kind of reverse engineer, like, what the trumpet player is saying <laughs> by what Bernstein says. <laughs> Was like, where he's like, you know, all right, yes, that's exactly now the way to play it. That's the way you have to play it. Don't you hear the difference? You don't. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's nice. I forgot about that detail of it. And add a level of painfulness. You know, I'm thinking to the trumpet player. It's like the second chair trumpet player, I think. And I'm just thinking like... Why are you arguing with the conductor? Like, I mean, usually you don't, you try not to do that during a rehearsal ever. Um, I don't know, because it's just, you don't want the conductor to then put his, you know, scope and laser pointer on you, right? Because then you'll be the, yeah, yeah, we don't want that. So and you certainly don't want to do that as a second player, not a principal yeah, player. Yeah, right. Yeah, if you're, yeah, even the principal, but if, if you're the concert master, sure. I mean, because that's more of a collaboration, I would think, concert master conductor. But like, yeah, it's like, what are you doing, man? Come on. And anyway, it's a short clip, so only like a minute or two minutes or something. And it's just, it's just kind of painful to watch, but in an in entertaining way. And I'm glad it's on YouTube. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think we ever did that. Pardon? That's the way it's going. Try not to do that. He doesn't. Uh, well, we follow him. Well, it's strange. It doesn't sound like it's a try. try it again. Let's try. Okay. From the preceding two quails. Now, with this crescendo open, like that's much better. It really, don't you hear the difference? It's beautiful. You don't. All right. 17. Um, okay, let's go on. I wonder if A, he's still alive and playing, and 
B, I wonder if he like I wonder what he thinks of the existence of his of this clip. Like did he know that it was being recording? Recorded? You would hope. I mean there's cameras in the room and it's you know, I don't know. I mean he probably knew that it was being recorded, but he there's yeah. no way that he saw the advent of YouTube. Like <laughs> he true, probably thought true. like this is gonna go to some <laughs> this is gonna get on some tape that no one's gonna watch and it's just gonna get dusty in someone's like shelf. He couldn't think that this could just be a few clicks away for, for anyone on the planet with an internet connection. Yeah. Yeah, I'm willing to bet he did not see that coming. Yeah, so. Yeah, do they say the Trump player's name? They don't say the name. The comments could probably. Oh, the comments have his like address and, and social security <laughs> yeah. number now. <laughs> oh, the internet. I love you. I mean, I, I don't want to cheat by adding a video here, but I think from that same rehearsal, there's another clip where he's picking on a triangle player. So, oh, I, yes, it is yeah. the same rehearsal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he was really, he was really on something in that rehearsal. <laughs> is this the same rehearsal with the tuba player? Yeah, that yeah. He calls out. Is that yeah, it? yeah. I think we've talked yeah. about that one before. So, yeah. You talk big, but you can't last. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Maybe they all knew that they were being recorded and they just tried to make it entertaining for the bit. Maybe that's what's going on. Yeah, maybe it's more British than we even thought. This was. Oh, or maybe uh, British orchestras rehearse like they run their parliament, you know? It's just <laughs> it's just chaos. Everyone's just yelling out. The House of Commons. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> as Robin Williams says, Congress with the two-drink minimum. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. You would think, you know, American Congress would be like the rowdy government room in the world right you know it'd be like a few yeehaws and gunshots at the ceiling sort of deal but no if yeah. you turn on c-span like congress sessions are like the most boring thing ever and like oh i disagree with the congressman from texas's you know 14th district right and but you watch like the house of commons sessions especially during brexit yeah it's like this speaker doesn't know a lamb's bottom from his own face <laughs> <laughs> It's a pretty similar energy in the in the BBC Symphony. So yeah, I think when the Brits get in like big groups, if it's an Arsenal game or a <laughs> yeah. rehearsal or like New Year's Eve, like it's, <laughs> like yeah, all bets are off. Like anything can happen, really. Sounds about right. This government or that Labour Party led by Jeremy Corbyn. We don't name people in the chamber. People must observe the rules. No, no, or, order, order. Order, I am simply and politely informing the Prime Minister of the very long-established procedure with which everybody, including the Prime Minister, must comply. Mr Lewis, get a grip of yourself, man. Come, take up yoga, you'll find it beneficial, man. I say to member, order! Resume your seat, Mr. Harper. You don't stand when I'm standing, and that's the end of it. Mr. Angus Brendan McNeil, calm yourself. You may be a cheeky chappy, but you're also an exceptionally noisy one. <laughs> the Prime Minister will please withdraw the word idiot. It's unparliamentary. A simple withdrawal will suffice. We're grateful. Order, put it back. No, no, no. No, order. Order. Shall I do another? Let's do it. Let's do it. Uh, this one is a 10-minute clip of Leonard Bernstein at the piano with a glass of scotch and a cigarette. Uh, he's discussing Beethoven's 6th and 7th symphonies mm-hmm. with, uh, I think he's like a German actor or something. His, his name is uh, Maximilian Schell. It's just a classic sort of clip of Bernstein like really in his element. Just like... Yeah, ca- most Lenny. Yeah, just casual, yeah. discursive drink in hand, smoke in hand, just sort of chatting about music, right? In a casual yeah. way, not unlike ourselves. <laughs> and I, I just think he dropped so many insights about, about Beethoven and the way that he composed. And I also think it's indicative of his sort of special talent for 
highlighting certain aspects in the way that he taught, right? Um, so in this clip, he talks about what Beethoven really had going for him was not necessarily his ability to write melodies or harmonies or counterpoint or orchestrate anything, mm-hmm. but uh, he just knew the right note to put in the right place, and it seemed like he had a phone to God or something. You know, hmm. I think that's like a, a concept that it's easy to say, but uh, to really bring out in the way that Bernstein does with examples and humor, it's a really interesting glimpse into into the way that he sort of thought about music, I think, and, and, and taught hmm. it too, but not in a formal sense. So yeah, I, I just, I really love that video. That's a great video too, because as, as you said, it's like in his living room or something. Like yeah. it's, just, it's very casual, hanging out in front of a piano with a drink and a smoke in his case and, and a score. And I, I like to think, yeah, that's what he would do with friends. And most of the time it wasn't captured on film, but this time it was. YouTube is really great just for just finding random, you know, yeah. eight minute clips of great musicians just sort of chatting. But the beginning of the melody is that. That's what the melody is about. It's not the ordinary conception of a melody. It's ornamentation. One note, ornamentation. And out of this ornament, he makes a melody. The minute he gets to the dominant, you know he's in the middle of a melody. Sorry for the wrong notes. Now it blooms as a real melody. Something we recognize as a tune. is the last note of the melody, which also is the first note of the repetition of the melody. If you listen, you see. See? That's his tune, for good or bad. I mean, that's the way Beethoven wrote melodies. He was not a great melodist. What he was interested in was seeds, motives, things out of which he could bring melodies. My next video, um, if it's not already on your list, I think you'd appreciate it. So my go-to answer for like the longest time, and maybe even still, when people would ever ask me what my favorite piece of music is, asking your favorite anything is like kind of a silly question, but I get what people are asking me when they do ask that. They're curious, like, what can I say that maybe isn't what they would have thought, or something maybe they're not familiar with but i want something that's like digestible and interesting enough and maybe like a springboard to like more music like this or just to get deeper into classical music in general so so for all, all those reasons when someone does ask me what my favorite piece of music is i always say prelude to the afternoon of a fun by claude wc hmm. and it's funny neither of my instruments piano or trumpet are in that piece <laughs> so i've never played it and will never play it most likely Every flute player knows it like the back of their hand because that's like such a pinnacle of the flute repertoire. And it's also digestible. It's only, what, 15 minutes long? Oh, long, it's shorter yeah. than that. It depends on the tempo, but probably anywhere between 9 to 12 minutes. Okay, nice. It's bite-sized, right? But it's it's just such a lush, gorgeous, interesting, beautiful piece of music. And so my video clip is actually, basically it's just a segment of his Norton lecture. One of his Norton lectures where he talks about uh, this piece. It's also on YouTube in just like a condensed clip where it's just like 20 minutes, like 10 minutes of him talking about it and then 10 minutes of him him conducting it with the Boston Symphony. In that recording, uh, the flute player is Dorit Anthony Dwyer, who is the, um, I think she's the first female principal flutist of, of a major American orchestra. So. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. And she's okay. playing this, you know, ama- amazing flute solo.
I'd always loved this piece, even you know when I was younger, like in high school, you know it was a cool piece. But when I saw this part of the Bernstein lecture, it just kind of blew my mind because he starts to break it down and like analyze it, like why does he use this interval? How does he finally resolve this interview? Like starts to dig into the music theory. But I had no like real like in-depth formal training in theory at the time. But you can still follow along. It's like at a high enough level, altitude level. It's not like you know so zoomed in that even if you don't know a lot about music theory, you can definitely follow pretty much everything he's saying it just like i don't want to say blew my mind but it gave me like a whole it unlocked this whole other curious side that i've since had about music theory and the structure of music because with wc as a whole or impressionism as an art form in general uh, it's very easy to have the misconception that it's all wishy-washy kind of open for interpretation and that's understandable at first glance but when you dig into this piece, you realize to the contrary, no, this is such a masterpiece of structure. And that's really what Impressionism is. What it communicates is a bit different, but at its essence and its core, it's that. And Bernstein so brilliantly conveys this in this clip. It's a great example of the way that he could communicate and teach just so well, because look, I'm not going to sit here and diss Glenn Gould. I think we've, pra- <laughs> we've, we've praised him enough on this podcast to make it clear that you know we're both huge fans. But there are a couple of videos of Gould, I'm thinking of one precisely, um, where he's explaining, I think, the E major fugue from the Well Trumpet Clavier book two from of Bach. And he's sort of analyzing the music theory of it while he's playing and mm-hmm. talking through the fugue. And Gould, for all his qualities, is not a great educator. And he, if you don't really understand music theory and you really don't get how a fugue works, he will leave you in the dust. Right? <laughs> that video, if you are not a trained musician, makes no sense to anybody. <laughs> so you contrast those two things and you, and you get a sense for how easy Bernstein makes it seem to you know, talk about music theory in like a, an accessible way. It's really not easy at all. It's lovely, this dreaming along with Debussy, but it's no way to analyze music. We want to understand the vagueness, right? Not just bathe in it. And so we must wake up and look clearly at what we've just heard. What about that opening phrase of Pan's flute? Well, the first thing that strikes us is the highly chromatic nature of this phrase, as it languorously dips and rises between the two poles of G natural and C sharp. Those two melodic poles tell us something crucially important to the whole piece. They define the interval of the augmented fourth, an interval known as the tritone. That is, it's a span of three whole tone steps. One step, two steps, three steps. Now this tritone interval has always had a peculiar significance throughout musical history. What you got for me? It's a video on YouTube. Again, it's about an hour long, and it's called um, Teachers and Teaching, yeah. an autobiographic essay by Leonard Bernstein. And yeah, I could be wrong, but I think this is as close as he got to an autobiography. Interesting, yeah. There, there yeah. are two biographies of him, one sanctioned and one not. You know, <laughs> one, one sticks more closely to uh, established facts and one sort of veers on the side of gossip. I'm not going <laughs> to comment on the quality of either one. I'll just put them both in the show notes and you can readers can go to whichever one um, they find themselves more drawn to. <laughs> uh, I will just say that there's uh, a lot of fun to be had with Leonard Bernstein gossip, though a lot of it can be unsavory, I guess. But as far as autobiography goes, I think this is as close as he got to making a sort of autobiographic statement. And um, mm. it's just him sitting down with Lucas Foss, yeah. who's, who's a wonderful composer and, and pianist in his own right. 
they both were at Curtis together, and they both shared some of the same teachers. And, and they talk about their own education, their own sort of pedigree, and what they learned from their teachers, like Dimitri Metropolis, and how they came mm-hmm. about their own sort of just finding their voice and finding their footing in the musical world. And I think you do hear from their students, or at least Bernstein students. I think you yeah. hear from Seiji Ozawa. And you Michael hear from Tilson Thomas. Michael Tilson Thomas. Yeah. I think you hear from Christian Zimmerman, who you've mentioned. Yep, he's, yeah, He's in there too. Yep. It's an interesting one because he points out this really interesting thing that you see with music, at least with classical music, which is really the only thing that I'm qualified to talk about, which is that um, you see writers and painters all the time without teachers. And yeah. yet, and self-taught, yet, right? Self-taught, yeah. yeah. And yet you never see, you rarely, if ever, see a self-taught classical musician. I would probably think that's true for jazz as well. There's always, even if it's not institutionally yeah. backed, yeah. there's usually always like yeah. a mentor or a teacher. I don't, know, I don't know why that is, but it's something special about music, right? I think like you and I and like people like us in our field, our realm, don't really think much about because we're just so used to it. But it's funny how much of music is not written down, hmm. right? Or like not documented, right? Like there's a way you play Chopin, right there's a way way you navigate the tempo there's a way you interpret dynamics the the pulse the beat the feel the groove all that and but you look on the score and again i've been playing chopin for a little while so i didn't i don't think too much about it but i, I look at the score and it's not there there's nothing telling me to do any of that on the page but i just know as anyone who studied chopin on piano will know no there's a way you play chopin and it kind of goes like this right yeah. and it's just kind of remarkable how so much of music is like that right most of it, I would say, yeah. Most of it, actually, yeah. Like, it always comes back to, oh, yeah, my piano teacher when I was little, like, showed me this. Forget about the inspirational or the the big questions of music you ask that you learn from teachers. No, even just, like, the, the nuts and bolts of music, you kind of have to learn from another human, in a sense. Yeah. It's a very human-to-human art form, right? It's live, it's auditory. Again, it's in a way that, like, writing an art form I have equally as much respect for just kind of isn't. Yeah, or maybe like writing is something something you can live your life and be observant and just write, and you can sort yeah. of express yourself. Whereas music, it's it's part of this sort of tradition. It's really tough to describe, but I mean, just look at the scoreboard, right? Like the number of self-taught musicians is low, if it's existent at all. Even Bernstein, in this documentary, he reflects upon his um I forget her name, but the Russian piano teacher he had at Curtis. I forgot her name too, too, but yeah, uh, something yeah. about um making legato on on the keyboard without pedal. Yeah, you know, right. Exactly. In, in, Be- in Beethoven, exactly. yeah. And yeah. it's that, it's that kind of like tiny little detail that that you need to focus on when making music that you can't really just learn from it's not just like you can learn from a recording because you don't really know you need someone to sort of spotlight certain aspects of playing. So, you know, just by listening to Baron Bohm's recordings of Beethoven sonatas, if you've never had a piano lesson, you're not really going to know what to listen for. There's just too much to listen for. And that's where you need a teacher to say why are you using the pedal here? Make the legato with the fingers. Or try playing it like this, or this could also go like that, you know. And so groaning, I went to my first piano lesson with her. And she turned out to be a veritable tyrant. She sat there and said, all right, now play me that Bach fugue that you played at your audition. Go ahead. And she stopped me after a few bars. I said, why are you banging that way? Why are you kicking the pedal? Why is the pedal down at all? You're playing Bach. Listen to your left hand. It's drowning out your right hand. If you were conducting this in your class with Dr. Reiner, you'd never let an orchestra do what you're doing now at the piano. You're you're not listening to yourself. 
You have to listen to yourself the way you would listen to an orchestra on the podium. And you have to be critical. And you have to blah, blah, blah. She scared the daylights out of me. So I, I left this lesson absolutely trembling with an assignment to learn the pastoral sonata of Beethoven. Great. And so let's see, I have one. I just have to do it, Sweeter. I have to do it. Are you about to give elocution lessons over the microphone? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So this is um, the recording sessions for the original West Side Story soundtrack. And Leonard Bernstein, he's being good old Lenny. He's showing up to rehearsals. Uh, sorry, not re recording sessions. <laughs> like, hungover slash still drunk. <laughs> and he's like smoking a cigarette up there. And he's he has some moments of genius, you know, and respect. The studio orchestra is a New York-based one. So it's all like leading players in, in the New York scene are all playing in this orchestra, re recording the soundtrack. Great stuff all around, but... Um, he doesn't have a whole lot of patience, and there's many cases where he ends up yelling at people and, and insulting folks. I mean, one of the more famous parts of this documentary is the kind of duel he gets in with Jose Carreras, the third tenor. Yeah. Um, the other guy, uh, as they call him in yes. Seinfeld. <laughs> but yeah, so he's playing Tony, and Lenny just just calls him out on everything. Like, nope, you modulate to the wrong key. Take two. All right, we're doing it. You know, and just uh, goes back and forth, and it's hilarious. It's so funny. No, no, I mean, Q was changed to play in my red pencil. Four o'clock in the fucking morning, I was up doing this. Why don't they deliver these messages? He did have a bit of a temper, but that recording is wonderful. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and for us, the highlight of, of this whole multi-week-long recording deal, or, or maybe it was only a week. Actually, it seems like it went by pretty quick. But um, the lead recording engineer, John is his name, <laughs> starts giving um, Jose Carrera some um, pronunciation lessons over the microphone in the middle of like, the big recording session. You know, it's like advice on like, how to pronounce things for the next take. We'll put a clip here. <laughs> Jose? Yes. Uh, come, coming. Uh, come. Coming. Mm. Come. I'm saying, calm, uh, John, please don't do this. Don't give elocution lessons over the microphone, okay? Silly man. Uh, madman. Oh, I do love, um, towards the beginning, before Lenny gets kind of cranky, I imagine it's sort of like the evening or the day before the big first day in the in the recording studio but yeah he has like all the singers over to his apartment <laughs> like has this big welcome party with booze and food and stuff and they're all hanging out just, he's playing the piano and he has you know a girl on each arm as he just it's on his couch <laughs> noticeably Carreras is absent from that <laughs> <laughs> he finds out the next day at the recording studio wait oh you guys did what last night no huh <laughs> He realizes then that these sessions are not going to go well for him. Could it be? Yes, it could. Something's coming, something good. If I can wait, something coming. You went to G major instead of F major. Also, if I can wait, you're not waiting. You're <laughs> Uh, what, maybe we should break and listen to it? Why not? Why not? <laughs> so, take a break. Just take ten. But no, it's also a fascinating little documentary to peek into the recording studio life and stuff. And you know, when they're like, all right, take 147. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm, 32. 
32. Bar 32. Come on. Call it. Okay, stand by, everybody. Something's coming. Take 130. I always just find it fascinating to watch great artists work because they all have different ways of working. And mm-hmm. in the modern world, there's a sort of emphasis on professionalism and niceties and making sure everyone's comfortable at all times. And yeah. I mean, obviously, certain people work best like that. Um, mm-hmm. I'm one of them. I'm not someone with a particularly bad temper or anything, you know. I'm much more quick to sort of crack a joke and try to try to ease the situation and make friends. But, you know, I, I think there are certain great conductors, obviously, some great film directors who had horrible tempers. And I think you just got to gotta accept that some people work like that and yeah, and take right, the good with right. the bad, you know. Totally. And yeah, I mean, any final thoughts you want to say on Lenny? I mean, as this movie starts up, I mean, as they near the end of production and stuff and the marketing PR game, you know, starts to happen. We're going to start hearing a lot more about not only this this film and, you know, I really ho- hope it's great and stuff, but we're going to start, I guess, hearing just a lot more about Bernstein in general. And there's going to be a lot more New Yorker pieces talking about the life of <laughs> Lenny, a lot more articles, performances of Lenny's music and stuff. So we're ahead of the game here, Streeter. We're yeah. about to, <laughs> and we're, you know, so how can we prepare our, our listeners to better be prepared for this onslaught of Bernstein? Well, I mean, listen to his recordings, watch the, all the stuff on YouTube of him conducting. I mean, I hope this movie is going to be great, but I suspect it'll focus a lot on his personal life. And mm. I'm sure that a lot of the think pieces coming out of the sort of New York intelligentsia will focus on his relationships and his conflicted faith, his conflicted sexuality maybe some stuff about Mm -hmm. you know the me too movement i know when me too happened there were some rumblings about bernstein there i'm not for one particularly looking forward to those like who cares just (laughs) you know just listen to to his music right yeah his words and his his lectures and all these things it's more accessible than ever that's so true on youtube so you know when inevitably that stupid new yorker article comes out you know, you really don't have to read it. You could instead spend uh, an hour watching one of those documentaries that we mentioned. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't think you've you've written on Lenny on your Substack yet. Yeah, that would be a good idea. Yeah, I could write the think piece that I want to see in the world. You know. Yeah, there we go. There we yeah, go. be the think piece you want to see in the world. <laughs> That's just how Gandhi said it, man. Carreras, I'll never stop saying. Carrera. Sounds of the world in a single word. Maria, 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 Maria. I've just met a girl named Maria, and suddenly that name will never be the same. I've just kissed a girl named Maria And suddenly I found how wonderful a song can be Maria, say it loud and there's music playing Say it soft and it's almost like praying Maria I'll never stop saying